Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. 
Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Might as well keep standing. <clears throat> Irony is defined as a situation in which the outcome is the opposite of what was expected or what sh it should have been. And history is full of such examples of irony, and many of them tragic. In the 8th century, Chinese alchemists looking for the elixir of immortality mixed potassium nitrate, sulfur, and charcoal. And the result literally blew up in their face as they discovered gunpowder. And in trying to find a mixture that would give life, instead they created a product that would kill many hundreds of millions. In 1914, author H.G. Wells referred to the war that had just broken out as the war that would end all war. And so this war quickly began to be referred to as the war to end all wars. And I'm speaking, of course, of the First World War. But the fact that there was a Second World War proved that this First World War didn't end anything. In fact, even though the, the 21st century isn't off to a good start, the 20th century is, is the bloodiest century in all human history, with over 160 million people dying in war. On November 22, 1963, Nellie Connolly, the wife of the governor of Texas, rode in the motorcade with her husband and President John F. Kennedy. As crowds lined the streets, Mrs. Connolly said to JFK, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. Seconds later, three shots rang out, killing the president. Now, all of these are horrific examples of irony, but none can compare to the irony that is played out in the scene before us in John 18, 28 to 1916. This event is absolutely dripping with irony as the Jewish leadership brings Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. As they reject the king of kings and instead choose Barabbas, a murderer, instead. And Pilate, the petty Roman governor, pronounces judgment against the holy God. And as Pilate has Jesus scourged by Roman soldiers who pay mock homage as they strike Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! As the chief priests, whose, whose mortal enemy is Rome, declare that they have no king but Caesar. And as Jesus is sent to be crucified. But never was the glory of Jesus more evident than it was in the events surrounding the crucifixion. The king of kings is treated absolutely shamefully, but he never stopped being God the Son, no matter what atrocities were committed against him. 
In fact, the atrocities that were committed against him and his response proved that he was God the Son. Now, who is responsible for this horrific event? The Jews, Pontius Pilate, Roman soldiers? We'll see who's responsible. The scene flashes back and forth between Jesus and the Jews, between Pilate and the soldiers, and Pilate again, and the Jews inside and outside of Pilate's headquarters. Verse 28 begins at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest where Jesus had faced a kangaroo court. There was the appearance of a fair trial, but the verdict had already been decided. Caiaphas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching, and one of the officials struck Jesus for his responses to Caiaphas. The high priest, who should have been bowing before Jesus, the high priest, betrayed him. As that human high priest, the office of Caiaphas was nothing but a figure pointing to Jesus, our great high priest. But instead, Caiaphas casts judgment against Jesus, betraying Jesus. We spoke about this a few weeks ago. And while this was taking place, another betrayal was taking place outside as Peter denied Jesus three times. And now with with 1828, the authorities of the Sanhedrin lead Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the Praetorium, the headquarters of Pontius Pilate the Roman garrison. Now, Pilate's usual headquarters was in Caesarea, in the palace of Herod the Great. But Roman governors made it a priority to be in Jerusalem during the religious feasts in order to to suppress any rebellion. In fact, a huge rebellion had taken place just weeks prior. The historian Josephus reports that that Pilate had taken money from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct. And so thousands of Jews revolted against Pilate and the Romans, and Pilate then ordered the Romans to crush the rebellion. And they did that violently, killing many Jews. And this situation was was so tense and and. Pilate had mishandled that so poorly that he earned censure from Caesar himself. That Caesar openly criticized Pilate for the way that he was handling the situation. And so this is is the scene into which we are plunged in John chapter 18. Now throughout this passage, we're going to see irony after irony. And I've actually made each irony as as my points for this sermon. And the first irony, the first irony is that Jewish authorities were handing Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman enemy. Now the Jews were eagerly looking for a Messiah to come and deliver them from their Roman occupation. Jesus had come. The Messiah was there. He was right in front of them. But instead of bowing down to worship him, instead they wanted him dead. 
And so they handed him over to the Roman oppressors. Now, what could possibly possess the Jews to deliver Jesus to the Romans? We read that it was out of envy. They didn't like the fact that Jesus had favor with the crowds. But far more than that, they didn't like the fact that he was declaring to them that they were ignoring, that they were rebelling against the holy God by adding to God's law and by breaking God's true law again and again and again. So they wanted him dead. But the problem is, he had favor with the crowds, as fickle as the crowds were. So if they took Jesus and, sto <clears throat> excuse me, and stoned him, the crowds would then turn on them. But if they got the Romans to do it, not only would they take care of their objective in getting rid of Jesus, but they would also keep public opinion sharply against the Romans. And so they take Jesus to Pilate. And John tells us that it was early morning, and, and as we look at subsequent verses, we'll look at the, the timing, but it was early in the morning, probably just before 6 a.m., they used the twilight to cover their evil deed. Their, their deed would not be witnessed by the multitudes. Besides that, the Passover was coming, and they had to finish their heinous work before the Sabbath began. And this is where we find the second irony. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, you won't find this law anywhere in the Bible. There is no law in the Bible that says that a Jew cannot enter the house of a Gentile. It's not there. The law that said this was the Mishnah, their man-made Pharisaical law. It states in Ohaloth 18.7 that the dwelling places of Gentiles are unclean. Just think about this for a second. Here they were handing over the holy God to be killed and they were worried about being ceremonially unclean. This is preposterous. It's preposterous. It is ridiculous that they would be concerned with some outward, formal, man-made religion all the while rejecting God himself. And they won't go in, so Pilate has to come out to them. And he asks them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so Pilate tells them, well, then take him and judge him yourself by your own law. But if, he, if they judged him by the law that they claimed to uphold, he would be innocent. Jesus would be innocent. In fact, by that law, Jesus is the only one 
in all of history that could ever, ever be declared innocent. And so the Jews replied, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And John tells us that this fulfilled the prophecies that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be crucified. He told them this in in John 12, verses 32 and 33, when he said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And there we see the double meaning that that John so often uses. He's not just talking about his, his exaltation, but he's talking about how he would be literally lifted up from the earth, suspended on a Roman cross. And even more directly in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, where he told the disciples, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And immediately before this event, in Matthew 26, 2, he said, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So here we see John doing what he does throughout this gospel account. He is showing that Jesus is the Son of God. As he's demonstrating omniscience, saying exactly what is about to take place. But once again, when the Jews say it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, they're not thinking about God's law. The only law that said that they were not able to put anyone to death was Roman law. In fact, there are certain capital cases where they were commanded in the Old Testament, to stone people. But the Roman governors would not allow their subjects to execute anyone. And so the Jews handed him over to the Romans. Now, of course, they would conveniently ignore that law in Acts chapter 7 when they stoned Stephen. But here, Roman law worked to their advantage. In Luke, we read that they told Pilate that that Jesus had specific accusations. They had certain accusations against Jesus. John doesn't go into it here, but there's primarily four things, and they're all lies. We find these in Luke chapter 6. First of all, they accuse Jesus of misleading the nation. He did anything but that. This is a false accusation. They claimed that Jesus was forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. This is another false accusation, but this one has a very intended effect. To try to get Pilate on their side. To try to say that that Jesus... Is, is not just their enemy, that he's also the enemy of Rome. But we know that Jesus taught the exact opposite. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He told them that they should pay taxes. 
So again, this is a lie. They accuse him of declaring himself to be Christ, a king. Now this is half true. Of course, Jesus is the Christ. Of course, he is the king. He's the king of kings. But they phrased it in such a way to make it look like Jesus is causing sedition against Rome. As though he were setting up himself as, as a king in opposition to Caesar. And the fourth, again, is similar. They accuse him of stirring up the people, teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee even to Jerusalem. And again, this is half true. Jesus was teaching the people throughout all Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. But again, they made it look like he was stirring up the people against Rome. They were trying to garner favor with Pilate. So with these wicked men adding to and twisting the law of God and conveniently ignoring the law of God and deliberately breaking the law of God. With these false accusations that are being leveled against Jesus, we need to ask the question, what is evil? What is evil? The Jews are accusing Jesus of committing evil. They believe that Pilate's, that entering Pilate's residence would be evil. They don't see anything evil about wanting to kill Jesus. But how do you determine what is evil and what is good? Beloved, there is only one right standard. Only one right standard for good and evil. Only one right standard for right and wrong. God's word correctly interpreted. These Jews who viewed themselves as teachers of God's word were engaged in the most wicked act that has ever been perpetrated. And all the while they thought that they were obeying God. Now, as a teacher of God's word, this gives me pause. I had better make sure that my standards and my behavior are all with the desire to, to obey God, to measure my life according to the standard of God's word. It is so easy to see the hypocrisy of the Jews in trying to be ceremonial, uh, ceremonial and clean while handing Jesus over. But all of us need to examine our lives here as well. How do you judge your spirituality? How do you judge your spirituality? Are you living your life according to some set of, of outward standards? Or is it according to the word of God? For example, you might be diligent to have a quiet time and to read the Bible every day. But do you live out what you read? You might have an outwardly moral life, but your thought life is reprehensible. 
You might try to, to care for your children by homeschooling them, but are you exasperating them with your instability or your failure to encourage them? Trying to live up to a set of outward commands while failing to serve God from the heart is yet another example of tragic irony and one that all of us, all of us, commit far too often. Pilate then sends Jesus to Herod. This is testified to in Luke chapter 23, verses 6 to 12. When Pilate learns that Jesus is a Galilean, he sees an opportunity to pass the buck so as not to make trouble for himself yet again in Jerusalem. Because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. Now this works well for Pilate. It curries favor with Herod. And Herod questions Jesus, but Jesus refuses to reply. Here we have a, a tin pot puppet dictator questioning Jesus in a similar irony to we see Pilate, what Pilate is doing. But Jesus doesn't answer. We see a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Just think of what Jesus could have said to Herod. But Herod did not even earn a response from Jesus. But again, Jesus is treated shamefully. They dress him in splendid clothing and they mock him and then they send him back to Pilate. This creates an alliance between Herod and Pilate where once there was animosity. Once again, we see that those who were once enemies become friends as they find a common enemy in Jesus. This was true for the Jews and the Romans, and now we see it for Herod and Pilate. There's a truism that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we see this so often in the world when we see the popular media promoting Islam. When we see heterosexuals standing up for homosexual rights. We see this again and again. It's very convenient for those who hate each other to become friends because they hate Jesus more. With verse 33, we come to our third irony. Here we have Pilate, this insignificant representative of an earthly kingdom, questioning the king of the eternal kingdom. If this were not so horrific, it would be laughable. A flea questioning a lion doesn't even compare. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus answers, did you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Knowing what was going on in Pilate's heart, Jesus asks whether Pilate was sincerely asking the question or whether he was simply relaying a, 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 an accusation made by the Sanhedrin. And Pilate reveals himself immediately. He answers, am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And so here Jesus condescends to answer Pilate, and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Pilate says, So you're a king? Beloved, Jesus isn't just a king. He is the king. He is the king of kings. And he answers, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now the kingdom was inaugurated with Jesus, but it will be established at his return. The kingdom does not come about through political or military means. Peter had tried fighting to bring in the kingdom. The father could have sent 12 legions of angels to defend Jesus. The kingdom comes about not by changing laws or governments. Luke 17, verses 20 to 21. We read, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, and he will return to fulfill what he has started. The kingdom does not come about through human means. The kingdom comes about through the proclamation of Jesus. It comes about through the proclamation of the truth. Beloved, it is the gospel that ushers in the kingdom. When the kingdom, when the, when the gospel of Christ is proclaimed and sinners are given new hearts as the Holy Spirit turns rebels into worshipers, the kingdom of God is brought about. So what then is the kingdom of God? Perhaps the the clearest descriptions of the kingdom of God are actually found in Daniel. Daniel 2.44 And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Again, this is something that was was inaugurated with the arrival of Jesus, but will be finally fulfilled at his return. Also in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where we read that one like a son of man was was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. Fellow Christians, we are already citizens of the kingdom of Christ. But so often, the concerns of the world distract us 
May our desire for the kingdom of Christ consume our thoughts. May we live our lives on earth in eager anticipation of what is yet to come. May we keep in, consciously in our minds the knowledge that, that we have an eternal passport. That we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And may we live our lives accordingly. Verses 37 and 38 also include the fourth irony. The fourth irony. Jesus said to Pilate that he came to bear witness to the truth and that everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And so Pilate asks, what is truth? What is truth? This is an existential question. It is a profound question. And the answer to that question was standing right there before him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The most important question that we should be asking is not what is truth, but how can I know the truth? How can I know God? And the answer is Jesus. In Latin, the question that, that Pilate asked, what is truth, is, is quid est veritas? And A.T. Robertson notes that the letters can be arranged to provide the answer. Vir est qui adest, which is translated, the man who is before you. What is truth? The man who is before you. And so the fourth irony is that Pilate claims to be asking about the nature of truth while rejecting it altogether. And we see this played out in our culture every single day. This has taken place throughout history as philosophers claim to be truth seekers, spending their lives searching for truth while rejecting it just like Pilate. Jesus had said in John 8, 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Pilate here is, is just like the unbelieving Jews. Jesus was speaking a language that he could not understand. Yes, he understood the words, but he did not understand the meaning. He doesn't understand the significance. John writes in 1 John 4, 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Pilate rejected Jesus because he was not from God. He was not one of the elect. God was not working in his heart to enable him to, to believe and to respond to who Jesus was. And now Pilate provides the fifth 
irony. The fifth irony. He went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. This weak, sinful man is presuming to judge the Holy Son of God. John records three times that Pilate says that he finds no guilt in Jesus. He says it again in 19.4 and again in in verse 6. No guilt in him. He's making a profound theological statement without even realizing it. Arturo Zerdia points out that Pilate joins a notorious list of people who declare that Jesus was innocent. Judas does it in Matthew 27.4, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Pilate's wife says it in Matthew 27.19, have nothing to do with that righteous man. The thief on the cross does it in Luke 23, 41, where he says to the other thief, we are getting what we deserve. We're receiving the due penalty for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Pilate, Judas, Pilate's wife, And the thief on the cross, the only one who repented unto salvation was this last one. This thief on the cross with his dying breath. He says, have have mercy on me. Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now our culture tries to judge Jesus in the same way that Pilate did. As Pilate sat on Gabbatha, passing sentence. Now some less charitable skeptics label Jesus a fraud or a shyster. And some might even say positive things about him. They say he was a good man. Blasphemy. They say he was a wise teacher. Heresy. Such statements put Jesus on par with men such as Buddha or Gandhi. Men who are pronounced guilty under God's eternal condemnation, which is the only verdict that really matters. Jesus is innocent. Jesus is not guilty. No matter what any human being says or does, cannot change that fact. People can can put their hands over their eyes or stick their fingers in their ears and try to ignore who Jesus is and live their lives as though he did not exist. But he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is God the Son. Now quickly, the sixth irony. The sixth irony. We we see here that that there was a tradition that that the Romans would hand over one prisoner at the Passover. And Pilate thought, well, this is is a way that I I can get out of this. The people will choose Jesus, and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. 
But what he didn't know is that in the meanwhile, the, the chief priests had been working to, 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 to turn the crowd against Jesus. And so they shocked, they shocked Pilate by choosing Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a murderer. He had committed murder in the, in the insurrection, we read. So yet again, we see another irony that the Jews would reject the king of kings and instead would choose a murderer. Now, this seems ridiculous, but we see it every day whenever people choose the world, the flesh, and the devil instead of Jesus. Whenever you, as, as a Christian, are, are around non-Christians and, and they try to, to coerce you into doing something that you know is wrong, and you're more worried about what they think of you, then you're worried about obeying Jesus. And it's just as though you were choosing Barabbas. And again, sadly, we all do this. All of us. The seventh irony and arguably the worst irony is what happens next. As Pilate, even though he had said, I find no guilt in him, hands Jesus over to be flogged. Now, a whipping would be bad enough, but the, the, the Romans who, 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 who used this, this form of torture prided themselves in their skill. This was not a normal whip. This, this was, a, was, a, was a cat of nine tails. And at the end of each thong was, was tied a bit of metal or a bit of bone. And so these, these torturers prided themselves when they, when they flogged a prisoner to be able to separate flesh from bone. They were very good at what they did. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And this wasn't just rose thorns. These were two-inch long thorns. They put it on his head and they struck him on the head until those thorns dug in and the blood was, was gushing down his face. And every time that they struck him, they said, Hail! King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. They would line up and do this again and again and again. They would spit on him. They would pull out his beard. Beloved, this is the King of Kings. What they're saying was true. Jesus is the King. But they were treating him shamefully treating him worse than a dog. Then the final irony. 
We see how Pilate, still seeking to release Jesus in verse 12, But the Jews cry out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They would have been very proud of themselves for making this comment. And what they did is they put Pilate in a very clear position of choice. He was either going to do what was right and risk losing his life before Caesar or perform an act of cowardice in order to try to save his skin. Jesus says quite clearly, what would it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Pilate was being presented with a choice here that all of us are presented with. Are we going to try to save our skin at the expense of our soul? Are you going to try to save your skin at the expense of your soul? Now, we might not in this culture at this time have to, have to literally die for our faith in Jesus. Our brothers and sisters in, in many countries in the world face that choice every day. But are you going to die to yourself? Maybe in some respects even more difficult. And take up your cross and follow Jesus. Or instead, are you going to cave like Pilate? This final irony is that the Jews say, we have no king but Caesar. They were rejecting the king of kings and paying homage to a mere man. They were rejecting God and choosing instead a man who claimed to be God. Caesar claimed to be deity. The Jews had accused Jesus of blasphemy for making himself God. And they are choosing one who made himself God and rejected the one who is God. And so Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. Now, I want to return to the question in closing that I asked at the beginning. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Is it the Jews? 
Is it Pilate? Is it the Roman soldiers? Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? And the answer may shock you. Please turn your Bible to Acts chapter 2, 22. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter here is declaring, yes, you Jews are responsible. But this was God's plan. He was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross wasn't plan B. This was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus began his march towards the cross back in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned and an animal was killed and the skins of that animal were given as a covering. Now, of course, that, that sacrifice, that first sacrifice couldn't save anyone. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but this pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of the sacrifices throughout redemption history pointed to this one event, to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So who is responsible for killing Jesus? God is. Isaiah 53.10 it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The pain and the humiliation that Jesus sacrificed, that Jesus experienced, the crucifixion, was not ultimately done by men. The worst torture that Jesus experienced was not the physical flogging. It was not the crucifixion. It was, it was the, the Father pouring out his holy wrath on Jesus instead of us. The Father turning his back on his Son for the first and only time in all of eternity. This, this was the greatest torture that Jesus experienced and he did it because it was God's plan. He did it because he loved the Father and he did it because he loved us. And so I need to lay the blame on even more shoulders for this event. We need to lay the, the blame on, this, uh, on the shoulders of you, on your shoulders and my shoulders, because it was our sin 
that caused Jesus to be crucified. Our sin. Jesus didn't die for the the nameless, faceless humanity. Beloved, he died for you. He died for me. He died for every sin that we have ever committed and for every sin that we will ever commit. While we are weak, Christ died for us. Though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know about you, but I know my own unworthiness. I know that I still struggle with sin. And I know that I will still continue to struggle with sin for the rest of my natural life. Jesus knew all of that. And he still died for me. So as you sit here this morning, are you one for whom Jesus died? Have you turned away from your sin? Is your faith in Christ and Christ alone? Are you living a life of repentance? Then you can be thankful that Christ died for you. And by God's grace, call this to mind. Live with this in the forefront of your mind and watch how God changes you into the image of Christ. Watch how he takes away your sin and makes you more like his son. Let's pray together.